Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. Well, I've known you for a while. And um, one of the interesting things that came out in our conversations was that uh, you first became a real writer in Los Angeles. You were living here when whatever transformations in you took place that made you write serious fiction. Um, and I would like to start with the question, what is it about Los Angeles that made that happen? I would Oh, that is loud. Um, I, I think the principal virtue of Los Angeles for a writer or for an artist or for a weirdo is that you can be left alone here. And when I came here, I did not come here with the intention of writing. Um, but I managed to orchestrate several coinciding social disasters, which annihilated several coinciding groups of friends. Um, and so then I was left here by myself. Um, and it turned out to be exactly what I needed. Uh, it turned out to be a place where if you avoided people, which I was kind of doing at the time, um, you could just sit and think, which was not something that I had had on the East Coast, which, which is where I'm from. And I was also living in New York for the better part of a decade. Uh, and then I had come out here because it, I had also somehow managed to orchestrate uh, a massive social disaster in New York, um, annihilating another group of friends. <laughs> and when I came here, I just had nothing else to do. I had, n I had nothing left. And so I was like, well, I, you know, you've always had these pretensions towards writing, so why don't you actually try? And previous efforts had been atrociously bad, just extraordinarily bad. Um, by the time that I got to the end of 2007, I had written this short story called The Whitman of Tikrit, uh, which is at the end of my book, Ada, which is over there somewhere. Um, and <clears throat> that story is about this idea of Saddam Hussein's last day before capture, uh, filtered through the, the fictional premise that he was really interested in Walt Whitman, and that he was, always, he was, he was particularly interested in one edition of, of Whitman. And I wrote that in about a week. And it's, it's about 8,000 words long. And by the time that I finished that, it was clear that Los Angeles had done something horrible to me. 
um, it had it had left me capable of writing in a way that I had never been. And then there were years after that of trying to figure out how to work off of that particular breakthrough. Um, and so there's a lot of like just hanging out in this neighborhood because I was living maybe six or seven blocks away, incredibly depressed, writing, trying to figure out uh, what to do. And this BTW was a manuscript that I had originally written in 2008 and was awful. It was really bad. Um, but there was enough of a germ there from the stuff and from just whatever the experience of this incredible isolation and alienation that LA offered that when I did return to it at the beginning of this year, I was able to sort of hack out all of the really horrible stuff and, and what remained, I think, and sort of what I added, I think has worked out pretty well. But I think, you know, to get back to the question, I think LA in particular offers a really rewarding kind of alienation. <clears throat> well, there's another aspect of it too, which is that um, you go some places and you get the sense that every potential bit of subject matter has been exploited right. by somebody. Um, and some people manage to turn that into something productive, and we can get to that a bit later, um, because I think we can talk a bit about London. But um, I, I, one of the things that impresses me when I talk to you is how much you are in touch with the uh, I don't even know how to put it, the weirdo aspect of Los Angeles, something authentically uh, that doesn't fit in. And, and I remember us having a conversation about Olga Soto, right. who we both had seen, but I didn't know that was her name. Um, because of her behavior and the way she spoke, I called her the Aramaic cheerleader. <laughs> because I'd get on the red line and there would be this woman screaming at us in Aramaic with her Jesus message. And then you found out who, who she was and you found texts of hers. So maybe to, to talk a little bit about some of this subject matter that you've managed to cull from the urban landscape in Los Angeles. Yeah, LA is full of the weirdest shit imaginable. I was just showing uh, my friend before this, there over on Kingswell is a copy shop that was the original Walt Disney Studios and it has this amazing off-model Disneyana. Um, and I was obsessed with this place. When I, I had this theory that if I sent all of my faxes through it, they would be imbued with this occult power. <laughs> and so I would, I would be coming up with just crazy excuses to fax people, because who faxes anyone? Um, and, with, and with Olga Soto, it was, she was this woman who, starting in 2005, um, which is a little bit before I came to the city, was just plastering the city with, the, with these Samzada revelations about how Jesus was going to land in Echo Park on July 7th in 2007. Um, and I collect trash. So I was, I, I have, I must have the world's biggest archive of her material. I have about 40 to 50 of these things. And then I was riding the red line a lot and she 
was also, as you know, riding the red line a lot. And she was this astounding woman because you, you could not speak to her. You could not have a conversation because she was just constantly screaming. And her laughter was the worst sound that I've ever heard. I, it, like if you were in the subway car, it was like someone was holding you down and putting a drill bit to your head. <laughs> Uh, and um, she wouldn't allow you to yeah. have any kind of dissent from her yeah. completely monomaniacal approach. You know, yeah. if, if you said, you know, this is terrible, you're hurting us with your <laughs> with your loud discourse. Please go to another car of the train or whatever. You know, it would you'd be you know the agent of Satan, and you'd have to be put down. Right. Well, and one of the one of the things about her and about me is that I I try to engage with these things as if they're serious, because I feel like everything is equally ridiculous, so everything has to be de facto equally serious. Um, I saw someone actually, you can find it on YouTube, some asshole um, went to Echo Park on July 7th, 2007, and just was there with his cell phone or whatever, filming her and haranguing her about why Jesus hadn't, hadn't descended with his angels. Um, that's not what I'm interested in. I'm, I'm interested in these things for their own... I, I'm interested on, with, for the, with these things on their own terms. And, and I think, you know, L.A. is full of a lot of people who are doing a lot of really, really strange things that are way, way below the surface. And like you said, because it's not New York, because it's not London, because it's not the hell of San Francisco, um, there aren't 15,000 people blogging about every time someone drops a big gulp on the sidewalk. Uh, so you can find these things and just sort of engage with them and try to figure out what the hell they are. And I mean, hopefully you never find out, but they may bring you somewhere. Well, engagement is a key word because um, you don't come to this material with this sense of hipster irony and dismissiveness. You're not actually holding it up saying, oh, isn't this right. kitsch? right. And you know the corollary to that is I'm superior to it and I'm cool because right. I found it and I can talk about it in a way that's dismissive. Right. No, I've. I've you're been, you're a little more open to these things. Yeah. Well, I've I've been profoundly uncool since since I was about ten, and it's not it's not changing. Um, yeah. No, I'm not interested in in the irony of any of it. I'm interested in it as legitimate cultural product, mm -hmm. um, and I think all of this stuff should be engaged with in the way that the material that's being produced by someone like yourself who who is you know you you have you have the uh, the star of quality on you um, and i and i think you know not that in many many ways this stuff is as important as anything that any artist with a capital A is doing or any writer with a capital W is doing. I mean, it is funny, but there's a difference between being amused by the weirdness and, and, and the, 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 uh, the, the overwhelming wave of life, uh, you know, and just wanting to laugh at something.
Yeah, I mean, yeah. another thing to think about is the promiscuity of the of the interest, um, because you know, you bring up my artistic output. You wrote an essay for one of my shows, and in it, you propose a really interesting theory of culture that you know more or less indiscriminately mass culture sweeps it up and transforms just everything it can find into something that will make it money right and you know many of us with hopes and dreams think well there are some things that are more susceptible to this treatment than others and maybe i can line myself up to the trough where i can feed right but you know your your idea is that actually everything is available for this giant sucking up into right uh the the, the mass culture sluice and and for me that was a really interesting and radical idea i don't know if there's anywhere you want to go with it um no, I, I, I think that I did an interview, which I'm sure we'll transition to in a second, with this uh, British writer, Ian Sinclair, who is pretty much, for my money, the best living writer, probably in the world. Um, and when I was interviewing him, it was really strange because this was after I had written the essay for you, which pr sort of presupposes that for every aesthetic achievement either in popular culture or in more rarefied worlds uh, there was a whole chain of people behind it who were too fucked up to figure out how to make money off of it mm -hmm. um, and when I was talking to him he was talking about his Xerox principle which is exactly the same idea um, that by the time that you get by the time that anything infiltrates into mass culture it's been Xeroxed five times, and in the Xeroxing, all of the really uncomfortable details have been lost. So you only sort of have this broad outline of what the thing is. With him in particular, he had written a book called Lud Heat in 1973, which was this maniacal text of, of poetry um, where he was working as a day laborer and he was mowing the churches, the lawns of churches in the east end of London, and they were all, he noticed that they were all by a specific architect, and he sort of realized that maybe there was some kind of occult power um, to it. And then this writer named Peter Ackroyd, who he knew, um, wrote a book about this called Hawksmoor, which was this huge bestseller in the 80s in England, which was about these churches having occult power. And then um, he, Sinclair, after that, because he had been really, literally toiling in fields, um, on the success of Ackroyd's book, was able to do another book called uh, White... God, I can't remember the name. Whitechapel... Scarlet Tracings. Scarlet Tracings, right. Yeah. Um, and then that book ended up serving as the inspiration for Alan Moore's From Hell comic book, which then got turned into an incredibly shitty movie. <laughs> and so, you know, Sinclair has been there and had this happen to him, where this, mm -hmm. this mad little book that he published in an edition of 200 or 300 in 1973, then turned into, lost all of the detail, lost all of the information, lost the churches, lost everything that he had written, and it just turned into this film where Johnny Depp was a junkie. <laughs> um, 
Well, now you bring up Ian Sinclair. As I will. Um, and that's actually one of the ways I think we first became correspondents via email, is that we had this mutual interest in Ian Sinclair. Um, and I think it is really one of the great injustices. I mean, I, I have to say I'm not completely promiscuous in, in, in my ideas about culture. And I think it's a real injustice that Ian Sinclair is not better known. Um, and he's virtually unknown in the U.S. I don't know if any of his titles get published here officially. You can get them on import, the, and they are in the English language, the, so they're accessible in the, one the way. The book about the London Olympics actually got published here. Okay. So. Yeah, but he's you know he's not known the way he is in the U.K. Right. Because I think by now he's what seventy years old. He's getting yeah, he just a lot of seventy. He's getting a lot of respect. Yeah, and. And when I when I was talking to him, he's he he'd written this book called uh, Ghost Milk about the London Olympics, where the actual stadium was about a mile away from the house that he's lived in for forty years, and in Hackney, in Hackney, um, and the process of building this thing had completely destroyed his neighborhood, mm -hmm. and so. He said that he did over 300 interviews with television and with all of, and with foreign television, with domestic television, and it still didn't sell a book. It's apparently the worst-selling book that he ever did. Well, well, the other thing is that he, he <coughs> I, as I understand it, he was the virtually the only dissenting voice that got into print. Yeah, that he there was, was this orgy of he was support, the guy. and yeah. he was the guy. He, he was, was the guy who would show up you know, badly lit on the BBC, ranting about... The scam that yeah. was the Olympics. Yeah, and John Clare and whatever else he, yeah. he wanted to do. But yeah, so I guess when <clears throat> people from Spain and people from France and people from wherever wanted to come and find one dissenting voice, it was him. And then he just would walk these people around the same blocks and be like, yeah, you know, this is terrible, this is terrible, this is terrible. Which is not how you sell books. People, <laughs> people in general seem to want positivity. And mm. so apparently it's, it's his worst selling book. Uh, and it got published in the U.S., yes. which is amazing. Yeah. I mean, you know, for me, his masterpiece is Lights Out for the Territory, right. which is a Granta book, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. And um, it's, it's a truly amazing book that more or less documents walks across London. You know, he goes across London, east to west, west, north to south, and diagonally as well. And he, he finds this secret history of London. Right. Or he doesn't really find it. He knows it already. Right. And the things he sees on his walks are occasions for this discourse. Um, and and so I, you know maybe this is a good segue to, for you to maybe make an account of of what you're interested in in Sinclair, <laughs> because maybe in Sinclair there's a kind of image of Jarrett Kobach. Oh, well. <laughs> or is um, that is that too much of a question? No, I've thought about this a lot because my work has no relationship whatsoever to his, in the sense that the surface. At least on the surface, there's no... Although, I don't know, maybe Ada is pretty close. Um, but BTW has very little relationship to his work. Um, and I tend to think that it's, it's, it's... I tend to think that what you have to do is 
the moment when you are actually able to start making these things, you have to stop trying to make the things that got you inspired to make them in the first place. Um, I, I can't really, I mean, I can, I can speak to what I like in his work. I don't think it has a huge resonance in anything I've done except Ada, where unfortunately, <laughs> Ian Sinclair's method is married onto one of the greatest mass murderers in history because Otto is wandering around Germany seeing you know, the whole history of what's happened to Hamburg uh, since the beginning of the 20th century. And that's very Sinclair. But other than that, I've, I've tried to avoid it. Although, well, I'm not going to let you off the okay. hook that easily. <laughs> because I would actually submit that one of the things that you and Sinclair have in common is that um, he does this enormous amount of research right. for his work. Right. Um, he, and part of it is the research of living a life in one place for 40 or 50 years you right. know, in, in East London. So he knows what happened. But he also, you know, he's a book collector as you are and he does a lot of research as you do right and um i i also i it's terrible everything you say can and will be used against you um i remember oh you saying that the real fun of the work was the research and that the writing was in a way the least interesting thing for you that's definitely true the writing at this point i find to be really unrewarding but the research going into it is pretty much what I get out of it. And then when there's a critical mass of material, um, at that point is when the hell begins. And that's, that's when the real unpleasant aspect of actually having to write the thing starts. Um, yeah, so I mean the research is absolutely probably a Sinclair influence, this idea that if you know what the thing is that you're writing about, it's much, much easier to do. Because I'm also, you know, profoundly lazy. And it's, it's really, really easy to... <clears throat> yeah, you're not going to get away yeah, with that comment. No, but I am. I'm, I'm extremely lazy. I, I've gotten to a point... You know, when I first... When well, I, first... I, I think what you mean by lazy, if I can explain sure. it in my terms, when you say lazy, I think... You know, your, your, your assumption is that fiction is some kind of giant imaginary task, or it's an, a task of the imagination. Right. And, and in your books, imagination does not feature that prominently. That's true. You're not inventing whole cloth worlds and characters. You're actually relying upon your research, which is a very strong decision. I remember one of the first questions I asked you when I, when I first started corresponding to you, with you was, um, how much of Atta is true and how much of it is made up? Right. And you told me, well, about 95% of it is true and 5% of it is made up. Right. Which is a very different attitude towards fiction than a lot of people have. So when you say lazy, I would say that there's a, there's a way to unpack that word right. that's not so derogatory. might be the better word. If you, if, you, if you want to frame it in that way, but no, you know, I, imagination is not primary. No, Im imagination is... Well, you know, the, when I first actually started being interested in writing, it was because I was really, really interested in 
bizarre science fiction from the late 60s and the early 70s, the new wave. And I, it turns out that most science fiction isn't like that. Um, so I read a huge chunk of that material and then thought, oh, well, I can just go on and read uh, other science fiction and that'll be equally rewarding. And it wasn't. It was just awful. And what characterizes the kind of science fiction that interests you? Um, well, like to take an example, Philip K. Dick is, is a really good example. Um, Philip K. Dick wrote these books that... It, it was interesting. I went to the Philip K. Dick conference, the academic conference last year at SF State or SFSU, I don't know, some college. Um, and there had been, because Jonathan Lethem had just edited with a woman whose name is escaping me, uh, Dick's Exegesis and published it for the first time, which was this four or 5,000 pages of handwritten material where he tried to explain why God shot a pink beam of light into his head in 1974. And the answer kind of is like, don't have bad health and do a lot of drugs. Um, but Dick couldn't, couldn't deal with that, that, uh, that answer. So he spent 15 years of his life writing these really bizarre things. So the book had come out, and at the, at the conference, it was fascinating because that had flavored his reception for that year. So there were a lot of people who were there that were really convinced that Dick was some kind of religious visionary and some kind of, you know, really had some insight. So there were people there who were trying to tie it into their own neo-Christian worldview and all of this other stuff, and it was just I like, saw the pink light, too. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> and um, that's nonsense. I mean, that's, that's just crazy. What, and, there was, and then there was also an academic contingent who'd been these people f who for decades have been trying to really raise his prominence and have been really successful, but there is this gaping hole between those two contingents, which was what he was actually writing, which were these really trashy, yet somehow profound books of major imagination, where, where you know, people have spray cans that devolve technology. So you, you have this aerosol can and you spray it on a metal chair and it turns into a wooden chair and then you spray it onto the wooden chair again and um, it turns into a rock or you spray it on a car and it turns into a horse-drawn carriage or someone like Thomas Dish's Camp Concentration which is this book about um, syphilis syphilis yeah, a a prisoner. It's it's this post. It's this Vietnam era book where Robert McNamara is president, and there's a prison camp, and there's endless war. There's endless war, and there is a special army medical camp where prisoners who have low IQs are infected with syphilis, and it's some kind of genetic mutation of syphilis, and that turns them into geniuses. And temporarily. Temporarily. And then they die. And then they die. <clears throat> anyway, that's what I was really into <laughs> when I was a teenager. And 
and I read it recently, and yeah. I was into it as you know whoever the hell I am. Right. But but you know on your recommendation, right? Or somebody's recommendation. I think it was mine. Yeah. Actually. Yeah. yeah. But um, I mean, one of the things that's perhaps a virtue about being into science fiction is that certain expectations get suspended. And that may no longer be the case in the, in, in the case of, of Philip K. Dick, because he's really been accepted into the canon. Right. But, you know, the profound and wonderful surprise of seeing this book in a used bookstore that, you know, looks like a piece of trash. Right. And you read it, and it's quite splendid. Um, and I, I think there's a kind of trick going on in, in, in your mind, you know. Instead of going, well, you know, I'm... I'm, I think I want to write the next version of Ulysses, and of course I'm completely paralyzed. But if you want to, you know, be the person who continues this tradition of right. which camp concentration is a part, uh, it, it's a lot less pressure, right. and it's I think potentially much more subversive. Right. Well, but like I said, I more or less had to in order to actually do this, do credible work. I had to abandon any hope of doing the kinds of stuff that actually made me interested in actually doing this in the first place. Mm -hmm. So none of my work is really like that. I, you know. I believe I, it's, it, it's, it's, this is under the rubric of the very corny title, uh, Finding Your Voice. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> Although it's not real, it's a kind of ventriloquist act because it's all based on research. Right. Which is, I think, a virtue. Yeah. I would think so. It's Although, I mean, really, Sinclair. To I mean to digress one more time, sure. he really is one of the writers who has this. He has a very, very strong voice, and for me, one of the great attractions is the shape of his sentences. You, you know, how did he make that one sentence say so much with so few words? And the syntax is slightly fucked up, right? Um, and it's all there. And it's, it's quite extraordinary. And you know, some of the texts, even the nonfiction ones that are fairly transparent in their intentions, you have to read them multiple times in order to really appreciate what it is that he's doing. Right. I agree. Oh no, I've killed it. Yeah. There's a lull. <laughs> Um, and I guess I guess that's my cue because I had a strategy for the lull, which is to bring it back to BTW and talk about. Um, yeah, I heard that's why we're here. Yeah, yeah. So. Well, what the I, I see. Well, my problem is I've read so much now, and I've read some of it in manuscript that I'm having trouble telling the books apart. So it's like, where does BTW stop and the other one begin? Um, and so, so sorry, but I'm sure. not very good at promoting BTW. Well, if we just say BTW enough times, then maybe it'll it will be it will be yeah, inculcated in everyone's consciousness, in people's psyches. Yeah. Um, but in BTW, there's a character that she was my device for getting us out of a lull. <laughs> uh, M. Antonovich, is that it? No, no, it's M. Something or other Petrovich. Yes. Right? What, what's the middle name? It's terrible, but I can't remember. Oh, I, <laughs> God damn it! I'm gonna look at the book. It's. I think it's about uh, two thirds of the way in. But you know who I'm talking about? Yeah, the comic book artist. Yes. So tell us more about this. So the thing about this book, I th which I th I don't know if I mentioned earlier. I think I may have said it to someone. Um, this manuscript was originally from 2008, and then when. Uh, it was decided to do it again for Penny Ante. Um, oh, here it is. M. Abramovich 
Petrovich. There you go. Um, when it was decided to do it again for Peniati, I needed a couple of months to figure out how to make it not make me cringe. Um, and in the in the interim, I had written when when I started this, I started the the revision a couple of weeks after I had finished writing a manuscript that's 165,000 words long. Um, which is about New York from 1986 to 1996. And one of the characters in it, uh, which is spoilers for a book that's may never be published, but there you go. Um, one, of, one of the characters in it is this character named Adeline. And I had spent so much time on this and was like, oh, that's interesting. Maybe there's something to do with this later. Um, when I got to whatever the point is that that chapter is in the book, there was something in there that was awful, that was just like stomach-churningly bad writing. And I was like, well, I can try to fix this, or I can put something else totally different in it. And I didn't quite know what to do. Um, and then I was like, well, I can always just reuse Adeline. And in the book, in the other manuscript, she, it starts out with the two main protagonists being in college, and then they sort of, they start off as socially privileged anarchists who then sort of transgress into being bourgeois capitalists through the manufacture of culture. And Adeline... A plan a lot of people have. <laughs> it's, it's, I, I, thought, I thought that if I wrote it into the book, maybe it would come true for me. <laughs> so... Um, so she ends up as a comic book artist, mm -hmm. but her co-creator is an African-American male, and she's a woman, and they both have this realization that in 1992, or whenever it's happening, that to be African-American or to be a woman in the comic book industry is to invite creative and commercial death. Um, and so they both come up with pseudonyms, and she decides that she's going to be a Russian man. Um, and, and everyone buys it. Yeah, and everyone buys it because, especially then, it was so diffuse that who would know? You know, unless unless someone showed up at a comic book convention, how would you know? Mm -hmm. um, and so there is a scene where the protagonist of the book has to go interview her and then they in, in BTW and they have this conversation <clears throat> which is about a lot of things but is about uh, the comic book industry in particular which I, I tend to think if anyone and God knows I'm not doing it but someone should someone could use the comic book industry as do a really extensive analysis of the comic book industry as a metaphor for everything wrong in American capitalism. Um, Please do explain. Well, I mean, it's, it starts with criminals, right? It starts with gangsters who are... They, they need to... They're just doing this for... for for money, and so it doesn't matter. The art doesn't matter. It's just dudes showing up, and whatever they draw, and some of it's good, and some of it's bad. And then the distributors are all mobsters, 
Um, and then you have this wholesale raping of talent where these people like Jack Kirby basically bled into Marvel and created these products that now you have the Avengers, which made $1.6 billion, and Jack Kirby's family is trying to sue Marvel and can't, you know, like because they just don't have... The, the, the scale of economics and the legal system are so screwed up. Um, so, yeah, you, and, you know, the sexism and the racism is still incredibly pernicious, even now when there's been at least some forward movement on the sexism, the racism is still pretty much about where it is. Uh, and so it's an industry of middle-aged white dudes just, you know, abusing each other and, and sort of creating a pyramid of use, which is also American capitalism. But, you know, the, the comic book genre is one that you appreciate. Yeah, you do read comic books. Yeah, comics are great. Comics are, again, it, it has a very similar thing to, I mean, are they profound? Probably not. But there's something about the pulp trashiness that you can, that you can get out of them. Um, and then some people actually have moved into profundity with, with their work. But the majority is probably just you know, a really interesting kind of trash. Um, any, any favorites you wish to speak about in this context? Well, Jack Kirby is, is pretty amazing. Kirby, his, his work for DC in the early 70s turns out to be really prophetic of a lot of stuff in the form. The actual content is completely nuts. Um, you're putting me on the spot, so... <laughs> well, because it's, I mean, we can talk more about Ian Sinclair because I've read those books, but right. I don't know comic books very well. Right. I know a little science fiction, so, you know, right. you've got you yeah. to carry the weight here. Well, you know, I'm a little worried that, that we're now, that, that my, no, I'm not actually, but it's, it's, it's interesting. The discussions of my interests make me sound like I'm 13, right? It's science fiction and comic books. I don't know if there's anything wrong with that. No, there's not. It's just, you know, I do have this overwhelming pretense to being a literary writer, but I just, I don't know how to write about Middle Western families in the, medical, uh, the American Middle West who are going through divorces. So it all ends up being about comic books and well, science fiction. You know, we have to make a parenthesis here. Sure. You know, a lot of what is passing for literary fiction of interest is not all that interesting. No. And it's no. certainly, I mean, I, maybe it's interesting to someone, but it's not interesting to, to you. Right. It's not no. interesting to me no. either. No. And maybe that's another thing we have in common. We can bitch about <laughs> the follies and stupidities of bourgeois fiction. Right. I can commit career suicide here by bad-mouthing writers that I know. Well, I didn't ask you to. <laughs> my, my, my comment no, was no, general enough that it could no, pass, that's perhaps. My, that's my own inclination. So. Oh, yeah. I don't know if it's real suicide. I mean, some people are very vindictive. It's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> None of them are in this room. Yeah, but it's being filmed for the internet. Oh, yeah, well. So. And everyone I mean, knows everyone. Often when people think they're committing career suicide, they're doing something really interesting. And ultimately people appreciate it, and it doesn't turn out to be suicide at all. Yeah. Well, I've, I've had some uncomfortable moments of having shit talk to people's work and then having them help me. 
maybe 10 days later. So <laughs> I'm pretty, that's the way the world works. Yeah, I'm pretty, <laughs> I've, I've, I've pretty much learned to, to not do it. But um, no, it's, it's happened to me. It's like yeah. casting a spell. It's like, oh, my God, those motherfuckers are so awful. And then, you know, six months later, I get a grant from them or some bullshit like that. And that's, you know, that's just the way things are. Yeah. So it's, it's not I don't think it's it's peculiar to you. Yeah. Well. You can let yourself off the hook for that. Well, but I can be much meaner than I think. Than I can. I can. Oh, we all could, yeah, couldn't I we? Can, <laughs> I can drive it home. Um, but to get all the way back to the to the thing to your adolescence. No, to adolescence. Oh. Which so after I wrote this chapter in BTW, are they I, not recording us anymore? Are they done? Can we? Just oh my start God! We can talking? say. Oh my God! So, so we didn't commit career suicide, but we killed the recording. So now you well, can say a, whatever the hell you want. Oh. Um, so go to it, dude. Uh, I don't know. You'd have to ask me about writers. Uh, yeah, I don't. I mean, I don't know enough of them to care. Well, it's really bad, isn't it? Yeah, I'm. I'm. Um, you always you're bringing up people like, oh yeah, well, so and so, and yeah. like, I don't know who that is <laughs> because I I'm actually kind of an outsider to literary right. production. I'm, I'm you know I'm an artist or a filmmaker, but to call me a writer, I I don't oh, presume to on. call myself that. Well, you should. Your book is great. Bill's book, Halstead plays himself. Speaking of L.A. weirdness, is. Kind of one of the best books about LA weirdness that I've read. Um, do you want to talk about it? <laughs> well, uh, the tables have turned. Since the recorder's off, anything is possible. Um, uh, let's see, I had a job for a while working for Larry Flint, who acquired, perhaps without his knowledge, a giant library of gay pornography that he exploited commercially or was exploited in his in his stead um, and I it was my job to look through it and to identify performers and what was what was the professional name you're using Hudson Wilcox <laughs> Um, back in the early 70s, and actually earlier, the 60s, or even the 50s, if you wanted to pick up a hustler, you went to Selma Avenue between Hudson and Wilcox. So I called myself Hudson Wilcox. Um, anyway, during this job, where I looked at 700 hours of porn from Larry Flint's library, there was one film that really stood out as being extraordinarily interesting. And that was L.A. Plays Itself by Fred Halstead. And I thought, well, I really should do extended research on this film and the person who made it because it is really unlike anything else. There's, there's no, I mean, you know, in the book I describe it at some length. Right. And for, according to you, the description is more interesting than the actual yeah, the film. Book, the book is more interesting than the film. Um, but, you know, I found it fascinating and I wanted to know more about Halstead himself, the film, the other films he'd made, and the milieu in general that produced him, that allowed him to do this weird stuff, at least for a few years. Um, so it actually was quite a lot of research and a lot of oral history interviews. And, and one of the extraordinary things about it is almost nobody who cooperated with me wanted to be identified. 
um, there were people who said really anodyne things and they, oh yeah, you can use my name. But the people who really had the dirt did not want to be identified. So I had to think of all of these pseudonyms for people. And at a certain point, the last question in every interview I did was, well, if I use a pseudonym for you, what would you like to be called? And so I let them choose their own pseudonyms. Um, and and so so it's this very interesting thing, you know. What was it about this person that allowed something to happen? What was it about the time and the place that allowed things to occur that a lot of people now want to live down? Um, and I wanted to get at some of that. And I, I don't know how successful I really was because I think there was a hell of a lot more to say. Um, and re writing the f or reading the fabulously poorly written biography of Cameron. I mean, that guy had access to all sorts of interesting information. It was, it was turned into a book that, unfortunately, is a bit of a mess. But the book, it's, the, the information in it is absolutely fascinating. And it's very much a part of this mother load of great material about the underground of Los Angeles. And maybe even an underground, beneath the underground. Right. Um, and I, I personally think that this is an underexploited resource in the in the in the world of culture, and you know, obviously, you do too. Yeah, I, your book is <clears throat> the way that I met Bill. Is he is on semi text? Halstead plays itself is on himself is on semi text, and Otta was also on semi text, and he was doing an event at City Lights a couple of weeks before I had to do mine, and I had not been to an event at City Lights uh, for quite some time. So I went, I was like, oh, well, I'll see what this is. And it was great. And then the, the book itself turned out to be really excellent. And it contains kind of the saddest, most tragic line of, of all LA writing. Something about Halstead's sex club, where he had a sex club over on, we're on, uh, um, okay, if you know Silver Lake, it's where Silver Lake Boulevard dead ends into Glendale Boulevard. Right. And it's where the Bank of America is. And directly across the street from Bank of America is, is this bank of condos that were constructed in the late aughties. <laughs> and um, that is where Halstead's was. And what's the line? Something like he... He realized that... The city of Los Angeles did not have enough perverts to support the kind of business he wanted to run. <laughs> Something on that order. Yeah, yeah. Which is, you know, it's a tragic realization. America's second largest city. <laughs> um, but, you know, maybe there are just never enough perverts for the kind of things that we would like to foment in this world. That's possible. Um, are we reaching the end? Is that why they stopped recording? I don't know. What time is it? It's 8.40. Um, do you feel as though the end is almost here? <laughs> because we, there, there is a special guest for tonight, uh, your father. But, you know, we have to postpone him till the very end. Because right. there is no following Mehmet. Right. Right. But he is, a, he is one of the main characters in the book. <clears throat> and I can actually talk about the book now because I have this blurb on it. Um, <laughs> and, you know, one of the virtues of the book is this incredible character. The, um, the narrator's father is this crazy, profane guy who lives in Izmir and hectors the narrator by phone. Um, just as your father does to you. But, you know, we don't have to... We don't have to 
the well, commits collective suicide yet. You can talk about something else if you'd sure. like. No, no, no. I, I've been I, talking enough. No, no, no. I, I can talk about that a little bit. The, the circumstances of the character in the book are fairly fictionalized. The dialogue is all pretty much transcriptions of things that my father either left on my voicemail or that he was saying to me and I was just typing as he was talking. Um, my dad is a real maniac. Um, he's a great guy. We have a very good relationship, but he is, he's a, he's a special case. I, I don't know how else to describe it. Um, well, well, maybe one way of furthering this is, I, if I'm not mistaken, the original title of BTW was the worst Muslim in the world. Yes, that's true. Explain so, that. Oh, right. Yeah. So my dad, my dad is a Muslim. Um, he's a Tur an immigrant from Turkey, and he came over here uh, in the mid '70s. And he and my mom got married. She got pregnant. They were divorced well before I was born. Um, and he stayed. He, he really had no reason to stay. Aside other, from other, you. Other, that's what I mean. Yeah. Like, other than his child, which not a lot of guys necessarily would mm -hmm. um, if they could get away scot-free to a country, which particularly at that time had you know, no method of redress whatsoever. Mm -hmm. But he stuck around, and he was here... And he was a very strange guy. I mean, he's still alive. Um, but in the 80s in particular, he started to have a lot of paranormal experiences. And so my childhood was marked by this incredibly profane man going through the awakening of his new age consciousness. And so he'd be at his house. And he'd be, <laughs> he'd be like kid, look at that. And then you'd look up at the clock on the wall and the, the hands would be spinning backwards or he'd be telling you stories about like how ghosts were stealing his wallet. And, um, or he'd be talking about how time doesn't really exist or what, whatever weird book of the day or book of the week he was reading. And he read like, cause this was the, the eighties was really the height of new age publishing in these little paperback volumes. So by the time that he went back to Turkey, which was a couple of years ago, he had about seven to 800 of these books stacked up against a wall. And they were the trashiest imaginable books. Um, and I also, also remember you saying that one of the things he did, he was trying to program a computer oh, right. and find yes. in these occult books a system yeah. for winning that's, at, the, that's, at the dog track that, that's, races. That's also in the book. Yeah, yeah he... he um, this he, is New England. They have dog races. Yeah, yeah. He, he uh, read a book called Biorhythms, which is this pseudoscience that arose in, in the late 70s where the idea is from the day that you're born you have three rhythms, your emotional, your intellectual, and your physical rhythms. And they, they're working on sine waves that don't correspond. They're, and, they're different durations, yeah, so they and, only correspond every so often. Exactly. And so, <laughs> and so <laughs> in theory, on computers, you can plot this out, and you can figure out what your critical days are, where all three are in the toilet. <laughs> and then you can, you can figure out what your 
really awesome days are where they're all peaking. And so he's, he's doing this. He's, he's reading about this and thinking about it. And then simultaneously, he was also really into home computing. Mm -hmm. um, and so he decided that he would try to make <clears throat> a program <laughs> where he would integrate the birthdays of, of dogs, racing dogs, and then calculate their biorhythmic charts, um, and then correlate all of the dogs in one race against another to see um, whether or not you could predict the winners. Surprisingly, you couldn't. Um, then, then he got it more complex because he's like, well, maybe what you need to do is you calculate it and then you figure out how they've done on previous days <clears throat> when they've been racing relative to their charts and then there's a correlation between the charts because maybe the charts aren't the absolute authority. Maybe they're just indicators of some emotional mood. So then you have all of the, the 13 or 12 dogs previous races all creating some kind of data set where the present day, uh, the, 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 the status of the dogs on the day that they're racing can then be correlated against each other. And surprisingly, this also didn't work. <laughs> so, then he, so then he did more and more and more. And he did this for about 10 years. Um, and nothing ever came of it. Nothing ever came of it. And this was obsessive, constant labor. Yeah, it was every day. And then the, the tragedy of it actually is that he, uh, when he stopped doing it, that's pretty much when his drinking problem got out of control. And he's fine now, he's sober, but he had about five really ugly years mm -hmm. in there where, where we couldn't even talk because he yeah. was so screwed up. Mm -hmm. um, and then he just sort of stopped. He went back to Turkey and got sober. And then his new vice is bullying his neighbors. <laughs> so, <laughs> Well, most neighbors are worth bullying. Well, it's amazing. You'll walk down the street with him, and he'll like run into the tailor shop and start yelling at the tailor that they're sewing clothes wrong, and then run out and run into a greengrocer's <laughs> and start yelling about how the fruits aren't, <clears throat> aren't really aligned properly and how if you moved the watermelons to the front you'd make more money and he just does this the whole way down the street kind of every day um well i also remember you saying that he would in public i mean okay in turkey it's not all that common for people to be talking about politics in public. oh yeah yeah he told he told a woman that he wanted to uh, that a woman who was protesting erdogan the prime minister that the prime minister should be hanged and, of course, people hear this in Turkey and they think that he's working for the secret police. Not that he's a crazy man, but yeah. that really there's yeah. some kind of surveillance. Yeah, so they shy away from him exactly. because they're, they're convinced that he's some kind of agent provocateur. We to, yeah, we have to get away from him. Which is kind of fascinating because he'd really be the world's shittiest agent <laughs> provocateur that you could, that you could imagine. Um, but, on a more serious note, he indirectly, before this book, became a really big influence on my writing. Part of when I really started to think about writing when I got here is I started to think about, because I was just raised in enormous privilege, right? Like I was, I was raised in, on the East Coast as someone who was white. I went to East Coast educational entitlement factories. I have more white privilege than anyone. 
But I also started to think about what it meant to have this father who was a Muslim, who was really freaking out after 9-11 because, I mean, he was an American citizen until 9-11 and he was so paranoid that, they, that he'd get thrown out or end up in a detention camp that he became a citizen, you know, and he had some really ugly altercations that weren't his, for the first time in his life, weren't his fault with his neighbors. Um, and, you know, so he had, to, he had to do the obligatory thing that every Muslim had to do on 9-11 or 9-12, which is go out and buy the American flag decal to stick in the back window of their car. Um, and so I started thinking about this stuff a lot, and that is where one of the places where my work really started to move into maturity. Mm -hmm. And that's what the book is about, in part, at least thematically, is this idea of how do you reconcile being someone who was raised with this enormous privilege, but, you all, but half your family is also brown, you know? Like, he, my, dad is, my dad is interesting because he, his mother was a Bulgarian Turk who, came back to Turkey after World War One, and so her skin pallor is, was very light. And then my father is also very light, but all of my relatives, half my relatives, are just flat out brown, you know? And, you know, uh, how do you reconcile all of this? What does it mean? Does it mean anything? Doesn't it mean anything? Um, I think it does, but I also don't... I don't necessarily like the piety in a lot of so-called immigrant literary fiction. So he become, became a really good crux to put all of this on because, you know, if you think about something like, I don't know, the kite runner, you know, everyone is, is, is fairly pious and everyone is suffering in a certain pre-approved way of suffering. And this is a guy who suffered, but it, it's all been his own fault. And um, yeah, so he ended up being this enormous influence mm -hmm. on the work. And I remember you finishing BTW and saying, oh, I'm done with my dad. Yeah. And me saying, well, I don't think you're ever going to be done with your dad. And also going farther and encouraging you to include him in more fiction <laughs> because I found him a really fascinating character. Which is, which is a good idea, actually. I've come around to I mean, he's, he's a kind of comic character, but there's something quite serious yeah. behind his madness. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but his, his, his profanity and his comedy are what save him right. from being the pious um, exactly. immigrant Guy. Exactly, exactly. You know, and I mean, part of that was realizing that in a weird way, this, this experience actually is my experience and how to deal with it because it's, there's, not, there's not a lot of instruction manuals on how to be an Irish Turk, you know? <laughs> there's just not. So, are, are we ready for the, yeah, the voice so. of Mehmet? Yeah, so I thought I would play some of my father's voicemails. <laughs> um, that will conclude our evening. And that'll be voicemail inspiration. Uh, I just need to figure out how to do it. Okay, here we go. All right. 
yeah, I, I went through them this morning and, and figured and found five that are, it, it's not that long. It could be, but it's not. I've heard some of them. They're worth listening to, believe me. Okay, let's see. Yeah, I mean, am I going to be forced to make a segue here? No, I'll just we'll just is play it. it. it it's we'll quick? just play it, and that'll be okay. Great. That'll be the that'll be the end. Unless there are questions, are there any questions? Sure. My, my father worked in a factory when he was here. Um, he, he had no particular education. Um, my mom, he, he sort of picked my mom up in, in Turkey, and they made a love match. Um, but he had, he, he's actually, he's the immigrant that uh, Fox News is always talking about. He actually did come and steal a good American job. Um, he worked his way up through the factories. A jewelry making yeah, factory. Yeah, jewelry factories, yeah. And, and ended up in a pretty pretty high position. But no, there was no, oh, no so money. Did I understand? So did you go to, like, when you said entitlement factories, what do you mean by that? Private schools, yeah. Which schools did you go to? No, I went to, my high school was um, in an alternative education uh, high school in Providence, Rhode Island, which pretty much just imbued everyone with entitlement. There's another graduate here in the, in the back, and he's pretty entitled. Um, and, then, and then I went to NYU. I like what you're saying. I went to Oshkosh, and I went to Yeah. I like what you're saying about that. Yeah. I thought it was interesting that you would have been in school. I don't quite understand where the wealth comes in, really. He just made good on his job. Yeah, he made good, and my mom made, made, did well, too. So, so. Yeah, yeah, both of my parents are, I mean, my mom's not hugely wealthy, but she, she grew up, she was born um, essentially in a ghetto, um, and when Rhode Island still had Irish ghettos, and then was able just through education to sort of create a solidly middle-class life, and he did too. So you guys created the American Pretty much. I'm its Although I think that's a phrase that would probably never pass your lips. No, I, I, really? I, I think so. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I've, I've squandered it, but I, I definitely am the product of it. I'm, I am the distinct product of social mobility. Yeah. Yeah. I, this is the first I've heard any of this. Oh, well, new things come out. Yeah, indeed. We might just be asking each other the same questions constantly. <laughs> Well, you and I, I mean, in our, in our <laughs> yeah. private dialogue. <laughs> well, you've, now you've, you're privy to some of it. Yeah. I agree. I agree completely. Yeah, no, I like, I mean, I think there's been, 
I think people talk about there being a drift in literary fiction to being American literary fiction to being more international. Um, I don't really know if, if that's true, but I, I'm a huge, I'm, I'm on board with that completely. That's one of the reasons why I did this, is because I wanted to do, because Ada in particular is a very international book. It takes place in Germany, it takes place in Egypt, it takes place in the US. I wanted to do as square an American novel as I could, just here. I speak, I speak English and I speak bad Turkish. I speak really profane bad Turkish because my father had this idea that the way that you learn a language is by learning all of the slang and all of the swears. So I, I can, I can get your, I can get, I could get myself killed in Turkey. I probably couldn't get myself to the store. So, that's an inspirational tale. Yeah, <laughs> let's let's hear the source of it all. Sure. All right, let me see how to do this. All right. Oh, it's complicated. Uh-oh. Just... Oh, no. He doesn't even know the book exists. He does, though, know you're a writer. Yeah, yeah, no, he calls, when he, a lot of the times he calls and he suggests things that I should write. He, um... Are they useful? No. He, he has this idea that I should write a book called Stopped at the Top, which is, it would be a fictional account of how Bill Clinton rigged the O.J. Simpson trial. <laughs> and then he also wants me to write, when he was, when he was um, in the 50s, because Turkey still doesn't have a free press, but it really didn't have a free press, there was no pornography. So there were these cheap little pulp pamphlets called Yakulajak uh, Kataplar, Books to be Burned. Mm -hmm. And he's constantly trying to convince me to write erotica and call it Books to be Burned. <laughs> that so. will happen, I suspect. <laughs> All right, let's see. Hey, you call me and then you don't fucking into the fucking channel. I'm the fucking one, and don't forget my point to get it. Bye. Call me. <laughs> call me. I love you. <laughs> I love you. Excellent. Uh, let's see. Uh, oh, all right. And by the way, this comes across in BTW. The profanity, but also the love and the kindness. Though I changed my mind, don't do the Facebook. Don't do the Facebook for me. Don't do it, okay? Don't do it. <laughs> Thank you, call me. <laughs> he still doesn't have a Facebook page. No, he's trying to get one. He found his, uh, his high school sweetheart on Facebook, so he's been trying to stalker on it. <laughs> yeah, stalking is a common story on that media. Hey, good morning. Good evening for you. How are you? You know, last night, by mistake, I sent you something, I messaged. It's not for it, it's not for nobody. And don't worry, I don't give your phone number to anybody, understand? I want you to understand. It was a mistake, you know, I was playing with the phone, and then it comes to you. Call me. Call me, I am up now, okay? If you're gonna call me, I don't know whether you know I'll listen to this. Call me, bye. And then this next one is quite long, and I think it's pretty great. 
listen to me, listen to me very carefully. I like to ask you a question. Shall I tell Shakir that I am coming to America or not? What is your advice? What do you, what do you want me to do? Okay? And then call me, call me when you are, when it is convenient for you. That's first. Second, I don't like. This phone is all, your phone is always shut up. I don't like it. Honestly, that I don't like it, you know. It is creating oppressed hostility in me. Really. When you call me, I am always there. Day or night. Sleeping, I am not sleeping. Day or night. Middle of the night, middle of the day. Early in the morning, late in the night, right? Please call me. And then I have a good news for you. Okay? Bye-bye. I still love you. <laughs> Child, I it, it means cruel child. <laughs> well, thank you very much for coming. Yeah. Thank you. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.